Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Gene Robinson. He's a pioneer in the study of social behavior, and his chosen model is the Western honeybee, so he's an entomologist. But as is often the case in the sciences these days, that one job title doesn't tell the whole story. Dr. Robinson's interdisciplinary approach combines neuroscience, cell biology, ecology, genetics, and the newer field of genomics. He led the effort to sequence the honeybee genome and discovered the first gene known to be involved in regulating the famous division of labor in bee colonies, and went on to show that changes in a colony's social structure can cause big changes in the bees themselves, at the genetic level, much more quickly than you might suppose. Robinson's discoveries have significantly advanced the understanding of the role of genes, hormones, and neurochemicals in the evolution of social behavior. He is also the director of the Carl R. Woese Institute for Genomic Biology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Recently, Gene Robinson was on the IU Bloomington campus as a guest of the Patton Lecture Series. While he was here, he joined me in the WFIU studios. Gene Robinson, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much, Aaron. Pleasure to be here. I was once told by a wise person that it's good to open with a joke, but this person didn't specify it had to be a good joke. So maybe I should ask, did you get into your job because of your first name? (laughs) I get asked that a lot. The answer is no, but it certainly worked out very well, and I credit my mother. (laughs) Well, yeah, she seemed to have some foresight, I think. (laughs) What did get you involved in the sciences? When did that happen? Was there kind of an aha moment? Was there an aptitude that you had early on? There was an aha period. I was given the opportunity to work with honeybees to help out with a beekeeper and his activities. And from the very first time I was exposed to bees, which this was when I was 18 years old, from the very first time I was exposed to bees, I was just completely and utterly smitten by them and wanted to work with them for the rest of my life. What was it about them? It was this amazing combination of order and chaos. When you go into a bee yard or apiary, as it's known, there are multiple colonies of bees. Each colony can have about 50,000 individuals. So if you walk into a bee yard with, you know, 10, 15, 20 colonies of bees, you're talking about millions of bees. At first, it seems chaotic and noisy and and just uh, the utter chaos of that moment. But then once you look inside the beehives and you're told a little bit what to look for, the incredible order, the symmetry, the organization of the bee society amidst all that chaos was something that just really captivated me. Well, loath as I am to impose some sort of a overarching theme over everything. This already seems to be touching on something that is central to the work that you've done, this idea of the order in the chaos, the micro and the macro, the traditional scientific means of being reductive, juxtaposed against the new scientific trends in being holistic. It seems like the die was cast already from an early age. It also answers the the chicken and egg question, if you forgive the zoological cross-pollination there of which came first, the interest in science or the interest in bees. Yeah. So it seems like it was definitely bees first. Yes. yes. When did that kind of start crystallizing as a scientific quest? So 
I can frame this by uh, invoking E.O. Wilson, who's, of course, one of the most famous biologists of the 20th century, wrote in his autobiography that there's two ways that biologists get started. One is they fall in love with a question, and they find the right organism or model system to be able to address that question. And then a small minority will fall in love with an organism and then have to figure out how to make a living with it. What are the scientific questions for which that organism is particularly well-suited? I'm in that latter category. I fell in love with honeybees, and then the discovery for me was to understand what are their special attributes that really recommend them very well for study. And you're exactly right. It really came out of those initial moments, and I settled very quickly on the idea of studying their social organization, their division of labor, how they organize their societies. And because I came to it from a love of the organism and a feel for the organism rather than a particular discipline, I never felt particularly constrained by disciplinary thinking. I wanted to understand how the society of the honeybee operates and how it evolved. And that has taken me through many of the traditional subdisciplines within biology, including, of course, a very strong embrace of the newest, and that is genomics. So does that mean that at no point in your career, or your early career in particular, that you have mentors or colleagues coming up to you and saying, say, Gene, you're kind of weird at doing science? Not really. I was challenged a few times by um, whether a particular subdiscipline was the right subdiscipline to be considering in an early synthesis, but those were really educational challenges, and I've been very fortunate in my career to have some amazing mentors, some very supportive mentors, advisors in graduate school and my postdoctoral training, and then even individuals who weren't part of either who uh, responded very well when I reached out. So you mentioned that this led you into genomics, which is a relatively new field. And this also raises some terms that we should probably define, genetics being one, genomics being another. I guess that they're kind of easy to confuse. And also sociogenomics, which I believe is a term that you coined. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Let me stitch those three together because they really go with the work. So my early periods in graduate school had to do with looking at hormones and behavior, understanding the hormonal basis of division of labor, discovering that the division of labor in honeybee colonies had a hormonal basis really was the foundation. Let me take a moment to just talk about that division of labor since it's central to what we're talking about. Adult worker honeybees live about six weeks. They spend the first two and a half to three weeks working in the hive, engaged in a set of different activities, such as taking care of the baby bees, so-called nurse bees, building the honeycomb, processing the food, turning nectar into honey, cleaning the nest, and other activities. So that happens during the first two and a half to three weeks. And then they sort of graduate and become foragers. And they work outside primarily, collecting nectar and pollen, bringing it back to their colony. So when I talk about division of labor, I talk about the process of transitioning from one job to the other. The biggest transition, as I just mentioned, is from working in the hive to foraging. 
So the colony has an age-related division of labor. Young bees work in the hive, older bees forage, and that's based on a process of individual behavioral maturation. So it's possible to study the factors that influence how fast a bee grows up and switches from working in the hive to foraging. There's one other key feature of division of labor that I'll highlight that make it so interesting from the perspective of a complex system and so interesting from the perspective of neuroscience when you stop and think that all of this complexity is being produced by a brain the size of a grass seed. So for neuroscience, that's a really interesting challenge to understand how a mini brain is able to produce such complexity. So back to that second feature, the first feature being there's a kind of programmed behavioral maturation, working in the hive, graduate, become a forager. Mostly based on age. Mostly based on age. The second feature is a flexibility. Individual bees are able to respond to changing colony conditions. They can speed up, slow down, or even reverse their patterns of behavioral maturation in response to the needs of the colony. So they have this basic process of maturation, but superimposed on that is very strong plasticity or flexibility that enables them to respond appropriately to the needs of their colony. So this combination of structure and flexibility provides the basis for the success of the honeybee society. Uh, honeybees as one example of a social insect, the ants, bees, termites, and wasps being the main social insect groups who all have this kind of division of labor. So back to the point, um, my initial studies as a PhD student at Cornell University showing that this process of division of labor has a hormonal basis opened up the other areas. Because once you find that there's a hormonal basis, you realize, well, there has to be substrates, parts of the body that the hormone is acting on. And of course, with a behavioral system, one main structure would be the brain. So that brings in neuroscience. So if you have a hormonal basis of division of labor, you have to have a neurobiology of division of labor. So I pursued that early in my career, a wonderful collaboration with a close colleague, Susan Farbach, when I just started my career at the University of Illinois, we developed some neurobiological studies of division of labor. That led to an interest in molecular biology. Once you're in the brain, you're more interested in like, well, what are the molecules? And what are the genes that are producing those molecules? So we started getting into molecular genetics. Genetics being um, a term that has multiple meanings, but in this case, we're talking about, in the molecular context, studying individual genes, finding individual genes that are important in causing the kinds of changes in the brain that support the changes in behavior that underlie division of labor. So we started doing that, cloning genes. This was in the early 1990s, using traditional techniques in molecular genetics, molecular biology, and I started to get worried. I started to get worried because the traditional techniques in molecular biology were basically designed to address phenomena in biology that you could control in the laboratory, that you could realize and understand and study with relatively small sample sizes. So what's an example of that? 
So basic molecular processes having to do, say, with DNA and DNA replication and the basic processes of RNA and how DNA is transcribed into RNA, things of that nature would be some examples. There are many others. In other words, these are studies that are, by their nature, pretty out of context. Yeah, and you can control them very well. And they make sense out of context, so it's not a criticism. They can be studied well in that laboratory context. Social behavior is not like that. Social behavior needs to be understood within a social context. It takes place in particular social contexts. Behavior is highly variable. There's individual variation. And so the way we as scientists deal with any form of variation is to throw more sample size at it, to get bigger sample size, to look for central trends, to be better able to understand what the variation is, that it truly is variation, as opposed to a problem with an experiment of some kind. And so I was getting worried that the techniques of molecular biology, which were designed to deal with phenomena that one could study efficiently in the laboratory with smaller sample sizes, were not up to the task for studying social behavior. And I was worried that I was putting my graduate students at a competitive disadvantage as they were training and getting ready to compete for academic and industry positions, that they just wouldn't be as productive as others because it was slow going. Another factor is that the molecular biology paradigms were really, uh, the traditional paradigms were designed to study genes in great depth, one gene at a time. And we had a very strong sense that something as complex as social behavior is orchestrated by many genes, not one gene. And so how to approach this, studying them one at a time, would not give us the basis for really developing a holistic perspective, which I felt we needed in order to understand how genes are creating the nervous system, encoding the nervous system, and building the hormone systems to really run these complex processes of social behavior like division of labor. Just as I was developing the concern and the concern was mounting, the new science of genomics appeared. And it became very clear to me very quickly that this was the way to go. So what are the differences between genetics and genomics and molecular biology? So genetics is in using molecular techniques. So molecular genetics is a science that focuses on individual genes. It is very reductionistic, and I use that word in only the most positive senses. It focuses on very specific phenomena and seeks to understand them in great detail. Genomics is more about the whole picture. It is about the forest. It is about gathering information on a large scale, so not one gene, but many genes, ideally all genes, and developing that kind of a perspective to be able to get the information that you need. And it's not either or, it's not good or bad, they both are important, but I felt that to start the field of understanding the molecular basis of social behavior, we needed to use genomics to sort of set the table to give us ideas, to give us specific genes, that then, of course, would need to be followed with all the excellent techniques and approaches that have been developed in molecular biology. So genomics is wholesale, and molecular biology is retail. It's a holistic approach. 
And to illustrate the importance or sort of signal the importance of this, I wanted to give it a new name. And so then I came up with sociogenomics. I also wanted to give it a new name because I wanted and, and knew based on the early days of genomics, that genomics had the tools to be able to allow us to look at how the environment affects behavior in a molecular context. And I wanted a different word than behavioral genetics, which has come to be associated with understanding how genes influence behavior, which is incredibly important, but I wanted to be able to have a framework that could put behavioral genetics in a context to be able to be seen as one of the bidirectional arrows. So behavioral genetics really is used to explain how genes influence behavior, and genomics has given us the tools to see how the environment affects the genome which then in turn is affecting behavior. So a two-way street, two arrows, one arrow going from the genome to behavior, the other arrow going from the environment to the genome. Gene Robinson, director of the Woes Institute for Genomic Biology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm really captivated by this moment in science history that you find yourself. I'm envisioning a 22nd century science textbook that looks back at the year 2000 or so and says, okay, we had this thing called the Human Genome Project, which was kind of the crowning achievement of what happens when you study what each individual gene does so that we could graduate to a way of thinking that shows the bigger picture, that shows something that is more, as you say, wholesale rather than retail. And that it just seems like a big turning point in the way science works that I think is kind of under the popular radar. Is that something that you find yourself having to get the word out about when you interact with the wider public? Or is it something that you have any controversial discussions about with your colleagues? Or have we just kind of marched right through this moment to get on to the next thing? No, I, I think you're exactly right. I think we still are in the transition, certainly with respect to behavior. So the basic issue in behavior is whenever anyone is interested in behavior, it inevitably gets to nature-nurture. And those are popular terms, and they're meant to invoke is a particular form of behavior, a variation that one individual has compared to another. Is that hereditary or is that due to the environment? This has animated discussions, animated educational programs. The darker things that it has animated have been programs in eugenics, systematic holocausts, things of that nature. All have been rooted in this nature-nurture problem. So we're talking big stakes here in the history of human life. And genomics has given us an opportunity to reframe this in a way that I think is scientifically very rigorous and that can allow for a very responsible approach, socially responsible approach to understanding the roots of the behavior. Thanks to genomics, we can now say that it's all about genes, 
but that does not mean that we can forget the environment. The environment acts on behavior, shapes behavioral variation, because the environment can get under the skin, so to speak, and ultimately affect genome activity. What do I mean by genome activity? It can help orchestrate the turning on and the turning off of genes in particular parts of the brain that have behavioral relevance. So one inherits a certain set of genetic variants that do, in some cases, confer predispositions for particular variants of behavior, types of behavior, but those are only predispositions. They are tempered by and shaped by environmental influences, which are not taking a backseat, which also are affecting which genes are turned on and turned off. And so the substrate is the genome, but the actions occur via hereditary influences or via the environment. And I think that this is one area of biology in which genomics has really illuminated our understanding and, as you say, has done so with this holistic perspective. And it is something that is important to continue to be talking about and getting the word out. Our experiments on honeybees were the first to show these massive effects of the social environment on brain gene expression. These were in the early 2000s, as you said, and now we see it in many species. There are some really outstanding scientists here at IU that are looking at environmental effects on the genome and how it shapes various social behavior systems. I was wondering if we could take some time to explore that bigger picture of this change in the scientific approach a little bit further because you work at Holistic Central. In addition to being the director of the Bee Research Facility at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, you also direct the Woes Institute for Genomic Biology, or the IGB, at the same university. It's a relatively young. I think it started around 2008 or so. Is that right? And I'm particularly intrigued by its stated mission of being a place where science meets society. And that phrase certainly seems emblematic of your research, but how does the Institute accomplish that day-to-day, this new holistic approach? So the IGB is uh, um, just a fascinating place that I've been privileged to be director of for eight of its first uh, 11 years. And we really do take our mission very seriously to bring science to society. We have a particular form of science. We do extreme team science, I like to describe it as. (laughs) That Uh, sounds like something you'd see on cable. Yeah, right. Well, that's great. We'd love the publicity. So uh, extreme team science refers to the fact that there are no scientists in the IGB that work as individuals. They have to be part of a team. All the space in the Institute is assigned to teams. All the evaluations are done. Grants are obtained. Mentoring is done all at the team level. No one's forcing anyone to get involved in this, but if they choose to get involved, they will embrace this team approach. The second ingredient to our approach is that these teams are multidisciplinary. They involve faculty from across the campus. We have about 75 faculty, uh, core faculty, and then another 100 or so affiliates. And in that group, we're drawing on faculty from over 35 different academic departments, over six different colleges. So each of our thematic research groups or teams draws on faculty from multiple departments, often multiple colleges. 
then this gives them a multidisciplinary platform to address grand challenge problems. So that's the third part of our approach that these teams need to be articulating and reaching for grand challenge problems. So when you have multidisciplinarity, team science, and grand challenge problems that are the day-to-day scientific substrate for the institute, it's very natural to be able to project that knowledge out to society. And we take that part of our mission very, very seriously, and we've developed a portfolio of outreach and public engagement activities to bring the science from our laboratories to the people. I can give uh, an example. We have one program called The Art of Science, where images that are produced in our microscope core facility for regular science projects, some of those images are selected by our graphic artists to be embellished, and then they create artistic renditions of these images. We add a very well-written, simple-to-understand caption about the nature of the science project that motivated that image, and then we put on exhibits on the art of science. We will have wine and cheese receptions in downtown Champaign or downtown Urbana as kind of town gown activities. And then we also take the show on the road and have traveling versions of these images and then display them in a variety of locales, local as well as more distant, hotels, corporate offices in Chicago. Our most prominent placement so far was uh, 14 months at Chicago O'Hare, where we had 22 images on the walls of Chicago O'Hare that elicited a lot of comments on social media people looking at them and and enjoying them, getting ideas, having their pictures taken with them and so forth, and getting science out to the people in places where they may not exactly expect it, showing them the power of genomics to address big questions. And so we've been very proud of our outreach activities, the professionals that we've hired to develop these programs, and the many graduate student and postdoc volunteers who have taken part in many of these outreach activities. I understand that another one of the successes of the Art of Science program, specifically the exhibit that you mentioned at O'Hare, was another kind of outreach that is necessary in the developing sciences in this day and age, it seems to me, which was, I believe, that the gentleman who makes the microscopes that you use for a lot of these photographs happened to walk by on his way somewhere and was delighted to see uh, the name of his company next to many of these pieces of art that were also pieces of science. And as a result, uh, you know, a little more attention was paid to you. Yes, that's exactly right, Aaron. So um, you put your name out there in good ways and uh, good things can happen. So we uh, had those images on the walls of O'Hare. And like good science nerds, we indicated very carefully (laughs) what microscope we used, what magnification and so on and so forth. And um, it just so happened that uh, all of the microscopes that we have are Zeiss microscopes that we've chosen because of their excellence. This is not an endorsement now, I'm just speaking directly. And uh, the president of Zeiss walked by and noted that and wondered who was the Woes Institute and what's going on down there in Champaign-Urbana. And one thing led to the other. Um, He was able to come down and visit and see the real excellence of the microscopy facilities led by Director Glenn Freed. 
and we have become a beta tester that we were selected as the first beta tester for the Zeiss Corporation for some of their new instruments. We've been able to then provide our scientists and scientists across the campus with the latest in equipment from Zeiss through to some very generous arrangements that have been made. And so it's been a real great boon for the scientists on the Urbana campus. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with Gene Robinson, an entomologist who studies the evolution of social behavior by taking a very close look at honeybees. When it comes to one of the goals of the Woz Institute, where science meets society, I was wondering if we could talk for a moment about well, I'm going to abuse a term here, another grand challenge. We hear a lot about grand challenges these days, unquestionably important, but it seems that one of the grand challenges in putting science before the public is that itself, especially at a time when we have two kind of sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. We have a an impetus to get more STEM into education, more science technology, more mathematics. And on the other hand, there is a changing climate in terms of how much science is trusted and believed and prioritized in society. So when it comes to getting science to meet society, is one of your grand challenges reconciling those two sides of the coin? You're exactly right, Darren. It, it is. It is a challenge itself. We do several things. We're constantly looking for the right venues to engage the public in and what topics to be covering, and then in addition to that, what are the best ways to do that? So science communication is something that needs to be carefully developed. There's training that needs to be involved, and all of that is very important in the success of any particular endeavor. And so it's not something that one can do casually. One needs to be very focused on that. And so we have training programs that we have uh, postdocs and graduate students who are interested in volunteering in these programs. They are able to receive some training. And then we also have professional staff who uh, take great pride in their science communication abilities. And it's just something that one has to work at just as hard as the science and celebrate it and recognize the achievements in as strong ways as we celebrate the achievements of science itself. And if nothing else succeeds, I suppose you can always go even further outside the box and send a jar of honey to Stephen Colbert. Yeah, one needs to engage the public in different ways. That was a fun story, and it kind of illustrates, I think, one mindset that can be effective. So... um I can tell that story if you'd like. Oh, please. So we published some research on the effects of cocaine on the dance language of the honeybee. So honeybees have a symbolic communication system, the only one that's known aside from our own. They communicate distance, direction, and quality of food by means of movements and sounds that encode that information. The individuals in the hive who've not visited those sites that the bees that are dancing have are able to gather that information, process that in their tiny brain, and then use that to guide them in their search for food. 
so they can go out and find places that have good patches of flowers on the basis of having received the information from their nestmates who discovered the food to begin with. This is one of the seven wonders of the animal behavior world, to be completely clear. And there's a great interest in understanding how a tiny brain is able to communicate symbolically, what structures in the brain, what circuits in those parts of the brain, what pathways that are laid down by molecules, the molecular pathways and genes, how do they all orchestrate this amazing behavior. So one approach to trying to dissect a complex system like that is to look for toeholds, to look for places where parts of that very complex behavioral system resemble parts of other systems that have already been reasonably well studied. So we applied that approach and invoked the reward system. The reward system is a part of the vertebrate brain, it's been very well studied in mammals, that motivates behavior, the pursuit of food, and other activities are motivated and are regulated by the reward system. One way that we know this, sadly, is that drugs of abuse, such as cocaine, hijack the brain's reward system and create an addiction. The reward system evolved to motivate survival behaviors, reproduction, pursuit of shelter, pursuit of food. And so these brain systems are there to give you pleasure when you obtain those resources. That's how the reward system works. And it has particular neurochemicals that mediate and create those particular effects, one of them being dopamine. Cocaine is a relative of dopamine. And so when it's administered, it can hijack the reward system, and so you end up with the pursuit of the drug itself rather than what it was meant to originally symbolize. So honeybees, back to honeybees, they use the dance language, and I mentioned that they communicate distance, direction, and quality. And the quality is the part that I'm zoning in on here right now. Bees are very attuned to quality of their food, just like humans are. And so if the food is of a relatively low quality for bees, so bees collect nectar and pollen, so let's just talk about nectar now. If the nectar has a low amount of sugar, that's a low quality food source for bees, and they may encounter it. A scout bee may find some food out there, but if it's low quality, she'll collect some, but when she comes back to the hive, she won't dance for it. It's just like if you go to a restaurant that's mediocre, you're not going to turn around and write a Yelp review about it or tell anyone about it on your Facebook page. Nothing to you, dance home about. Exactly, so to speak, exactly. So bees are, are like that, a low-quality food source they won't communicate about. High-quality food source they will. Even higher quality, they will be more avid and persistent in their dance. That's how they encode quality. So that seemed to be something that really was very much in line with thinking about the reward system, that they were motivated, and one could imagine that they are motivated to dance based on the quality of the food, and their reward system is thus engaged. The only problem with all of what I just said is that the reward system had never really been studied in honeybees before. It had been studied a little bit in fruit flies, kind of a cousin, another insect, but never before in this context. 
So we wanted to ask whether the reward system might be involved. We did some genomics work, which I won't mention now, but I'll hone in on the cocaine work. And what we did first was we administered a substance to bees very similar to dopamine, but more the insect version of that called octopamine. And we asked whether we could make bees dance more. So we trained them to a low-quality food source where they only had about a 10% probability of dancing. And then we gave them some of this drug. And sure enough, it tripled their likelihood of becoming a dancer, of dancing for that food. So it sounded like we were on the right track. But to hit that home even more strongly, we switched to cocaine because cocaine, as I said before, the way it affects people and causes addiction is that it acts on the reward system. We gave bees cocaine and it made bees dance more. The New York Times covered this and you give bees cocaine and they dance more. The Colbert Report covered this and the first time that Stephen Colbert discussed it, I don't know if we have any Colbert, the old Colbert Report enthusiasts listening, but he gave it a wag, which meant he was poking fun at it. And it was more along the lines of, what are they doing? They are treating bees with cocaine, and that's weird. And that was the coverage. That was in the WAG section. So I wrote a letter to Stephen Colbert and explained to him all the stuff that I just mentioned just now to you, Aaron, and to our listeners about why we did the experiment and why it's important to study the reward system to understand the dance language of the bee and to better understand the brain's reward system. And I sent him a jar of honey and thanked him for the coverage that he gave and uh, thought that was that. And then two weeks later, get a call from the producer that we're now going to be on the shout out part of the show and wanting to get more information. And then that was the, the second connection. The point here is that, and it really goes back to your earlier comment, you have to work at science communication. So here was an opportunity, someone who had a huge audience, much bigger audience than I have ever had and probably will ever have in my own scientific work. And here was an opportunity to engage this individual to let him know why we were doing what we were doing. And it worked out pretty well. And it wasn't just any jar of honey either, was it? Wasn't it from your bees? That's right. That's right. University of Illinois produced honey from the Bee Research Facility, and we were happy to share that with Stephen Colbert. Entomologist Gene Robinson, director of the Bee Research Facility at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Becoming acquainted with your work, one of the things that blew my mind had to do with speed. It had to do with rate, with pace, because it seems to run counter to a widespread or a popular conception about genes, namely that within a generation, genes don't really undergo any kind of change, that it happens across multiple generations, it happens across millennia, and that is how the environment affects the genome, is that it happens over a long period of time. And it seems that that's just kind of wrong, thanks to something called dynamic genomes. I was wondering if that's another term that you could tease out for us so that we can understand that. 
Yeah. So the dynamic genome is a term that I have given to describe the fact that the environment can act on the genome in real time, in moment to moment, at the time scale of minutes, hours, months, days. So real time, not only evolutionary time. You're exactly right. The environment acts on the genome from generation to generation, changes the inheritance that we have, the particular variants that we have of our genome, and all organisms have this, shaped by their interactions with the environment, mediated by the evolutionary process. That's exactly right. But what genomics has given us are the tools to be able to see this other aspect, the fact that the genome is actually dynamic in real time at these finer time scales. And to capture that, I've called it the dynamic genome. You can imagine in the brain that your genes are turning on and turning off like Christmas lights on a Christmas tree. So what are some examples of dynamic genomes that your work with bees uncovered? One example has to do with the response to a disturbance. So honeybees are very, very well organized with respect to defending their colony. They have a lot at stake. There are hundreds of pounds sometimes of honey. There are tens of pounds of baby bees. And so they are very um, attractive to predators of various kinds. You describe bees as victims of their own success. Indeed, yes. So they collect resources from the environment. They transform them into more even concentrated and therefore useful forms. And as a result, they are very attractive to other predators and pests. So they have a very organized defensive system. They have a division of labor. They have different groups of bees that specialize on defending the nest. They have guard bees that patrol the entrance, soldiers that look for the disturbance once the guards have alerted them to this disturbance by means of a chemical, an alarm pheromone, a kind of animal perfume. And so they have a lot of organization. It turns out that they involve a dynamic genome type process there. So when bees are aroused, when they are disturbed, there are changes in hundreds of genes in the genomes that are present in the nerve cells in the brain. Some of the genes increase activity, some of the genes decrease activity, and there's a distinct profile of a disturbed bee, of an aroused bee. The bees respond with aggression to defend their hive, and so what we've been able to piece together is that this dynamic genome response occurs to put the bees in an aroused state and an alert state because ecology will tell you that one disturbance, one threat, usually leads to another threat. And so ecology has shaped this situation where bees respond very quickly to a disturbance. And by the way, that response, that immediate response, is happening faster than a genome could orchestrate. So that's on the nerve cells. The nerves, the nerve cells, the brains, the circuits are set, they're wired, they have a particular gain level, so to speak, they're ready to roll. There's a disturbance, they respond immediately. Split-second response, bees fly out, try to sting a disturbance, uh, an intruder, and so forth. At the same time, that intruder and the response to the intruder provoke changes in the activity of genes in the brain and those changes in the activity of genes in the brain rewire the brain, set it up 
So the bee is going to be alert. It is going to be on edge for another disturbance. So it's kind of a neurons are for today, genes are for tomorrow concept that emphasizes the dynamic genome and the timing of the changes relative to the uh, behavior. If I could just adapt your uh, very catchy analogy, by the way, it seems like we should almost break into a song, a show tune with the neurons are for today, genes are for tomorrow. But I think it's worth underscoring that it's not neurons are for today, genes are for 100 generations from now. Correct. Correct. Genes are for a few minutes from now, hours, days, months. And then, of course, one way to think about this, PTSD, the threat never goes away. Individuals with PTSD are feeling a chronic sense of threat. In a typical response, say for bees, they will be alert for a period of time. If there is no further threat, they will go back down to their baseline. We can imagine this dynamic genome being dysregulated, not going back to a original state and giving rise to various problems like PTSD. So at the Woes Institute for Genomic Biology or other places around the world where scientists are doing this kind of work, what examples are they uncovering of dynamic genomes in humans? So one area that's really getting increased attention has to do with understanding molecular mechanisms that orchestrate the dynamic genome, that cause the changes in gene activity and then keep them at those levels for some periods of time. These generally are referred to as epigenetic changes, epi meaning on top of. So these are chemicals that are added to the genome. The genome itself, the sequence of DNA, is not changing, but chemicals are added to the genome to keep genes on or to keep them off for some period of time. So the science of epigenetics is taking strong shape in human biology. One area is cancer biology. Changes in the regulation of genes can be revealed through epigenetic studies, and that has been shown to have a big role in cancer. Another area is addiction, how these drugs of abuse are changing the brain in ways that last far too long for healthy responses, and these are being also orchestrated by epigenetics. So just to clarify, just because you have a gene that's been part of your genome for generations and generations does not necessarily mean that it's active. Something's got to flip the switch. Something's got to turn it on. Correct. Yeah. So we have in biology DNA, RNA, and protein, the kind of holy trinity, if you will, of biology. And so the genes are encoded at the level of DNA, but then there has to be a process of transcribing those genes, the DNA, into RNA for there to be gene activity. And then, of course, translating the RNA to protein to actually produce the molecules that do the real work. DNA is a repository of information. RNA is the information conduit. And then you have proteins that are actually making the body and doing all of life's work. So it seems like RNA is the fertile stage then. If there's going to be something that comes about because of an environmental influence, that's the stage where it happens? That's mostly the stage. You have other effects. So there are substances that cause 
damage to DNA or cause DNA to change, many of the times those changes are damaging. That is, they cause mutations to the DNA. So too much sun, uh, smoking, uh, other things that can affect your DNA can cause mutations directly there. So you can get direct effects there. There can also be some effects on proteins. But yes, you're exactly right. A lot of where the rubber meets the road are how uh, environmental effects get under the skin, travel through many layers of biology, but then ultimately will be helping to orchestrate gene expression. On the subject of examples of dynamic genomes in the human animal, I confess, I don't think this is a study that you yourself have conducted, but when I was looking into it, I was really fascinated by a study about the effects of loneliness on the human genome. Yes, yeah, so that's a very interesting study. It was published by uh, Steve Cole at UCLA, who studies genomics, and the late John Cassiopo, a well-known social neuroscientist from the University of Chicago. And it was one of the first studies that extended this kind of dynamic genome paradigm that's been developed from animal studies to humans. What they found was that loneliness has an effect on gene activity. They studied genes in blood cells because they had an idea that the genes that may be involved with loneliness have to do with the immune system. And so there are genes that are encoded in blood cells that are involved in the immune system. So they looked at these cells and they found very interestingly that people that self-reported loneliness had more changes in gene activity than did people who were diagnosed with loneliness by a third party. The point being that this perception of loneliness was associated with differences in gene activity how chronic the perception of loneliness is, or was it a more of a momentary kind of thing? That's an interesting question that really wasn't done in the study, but the idea that the concepts of the dynamic genome, that it can get under the skin and affect gene expression, which has been so well elaborated in a variety of animal models, uh, bees and birds and various other creatures, we now see the beginnings of that in humans. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Gene Robinson, an entomologist whose pioneering work with honeybees has increased our understanding of the evolution of social behavior. I think it was about 15 years ago, you wrote an op-ed for the New York Times in which you talked about a new paradigm for addressing the argument of nature versus nurture that we talked about before, the big stakes that you mentioned. And one of the things you discussed in the article was how our new understanding of how DNA is both inherited and environmentally malleable leads to a new practice that could be challenging but also beneficial, and that's genetic profiling. So I was wondering if you could discuss what genetic profiling might look like and how it might be utilized. Yeah, so I mentioned genetic profiling to illustrate the complexities of what the dynamic genome perspective and this new take on nature-nurture could hold for us. What I really wanted to emphasize was that a simple version of genetic profiling wouldn't work. 
And what would be a simple version of genetic profiling? That would be to just simply sequence the DNA and predict predispositions and outcomes based solely on the DNA. That form of genetic profiling, which is the easiest form to do, that, based on what we now understand about environmental influences at finer timescales, that won't work. So it was really mainly a cautionary tale to say that the most simple form of genetic profiling won't work. It won't give a complete picture. It could be very misleading and very worrisome in its application as we think about extending predictions based on genomic information to behavior. So we're going to have to come up with more complex forms that integrate the dynamic genome. We don't yet have those tools. 15 years ago, we didn't have them, and today we don't have them. But I think we will be able to develop them to get a better understanding of how the environment affects the brain in terms of the genomic activity in the brain. That's what will be required. But the real take-home message is that the simple form of genetic profiling of just sequencing DNA and predicting behavioral differences, I would caution very strongly against that. I'm wondering if the sound I just heard was the sound of 23andMe's stock going down a few points. Because if I understand correctly, one of the things you can determine from these commercially available genetic tests is your genetic proclivities, the genetic profile of what maladies you might be susceptible to, other traits you have to perhaps keep an eye on. Am I correct in interpreting what you just said is that that's not going to get the job done? Well, that's part of it. You do inherit predispositions, and for some traits, those predispositions, based on a lot of research, we have a reasonable understanding of those predispositions, and they're part of it. So if you have a certain susceptibility for a particular trait, you can make lifestyle choices that will help you manage that predisposition. So that's a very healthy development. Most of our predispositions that are understood at this point are not behavioral. Understanding the brain and behavior is really one of the grand, talk about grand challenges, one of the grand, grand, grandest challenges that we have. There are so many systems in the brain that we need to understand to be able to develop such predispositions. So we have some pretty good ideas of how genetic variants translate into predispositions for the um, likelihood that you will develop type 2 diabetes, for example. That's a beautiful body of work. A great deal has gone into that from the perspective of endocrinology and metabolism other forms of physiology, and so that kind of information is, quote, actionable. That is, if you are susceptible, based on your genome, to developing type 2 diabetes, there are lifestyle choices you can make to minimize the chance that you're going to realize that problem. For behavioral predispositions, we are far behind in that because the nature of understanding and predicting behavior is just not there yet. The amount of environmental influence on behavior and the many ways in which it acts on the inherited substrate, we're just at the beginning of that really grand chapter in our understanding. And so we just don't have that yet. Is one of the reasons we don't have that yet that we just don't know precisely what an environment is going to do, what influence it's going to exert? We talked at the beginning of the conversation about the earlier style of scientific thought that you were reducing things to their 
smallest constituent elements to understand them. And now, thanks to things like genomics, we're zooming out. We're looking more at the big picture. But is there some of this that we just can't really know till it's already happened to us and already happened to the genome? You're right. Uh, the environment has many effects, and many of them are unpredictable effects. That's why we need model systems using animals in very specific ways to be able to study environmental effects on some major social systems in a variety of bird species, amphibian species, insects, primates, rodents, and so forth, and understanding that at different layers of understanding, different levels of understanding. The Center for Animal Behavioral Studies here at Indiana University is one of the world's leaders in studying environmental influences on a variety of social systems, and we need that kind of research to be able to not only inform our understanding of nature and the various social systems of animals itself, but to get ideas for how to apply that to the human situation. Because of many of the things brought to light by your research, it seems almost as if this debate between nature and nurture just needs to be maybe thrown out, if not radically redefined. In other words, a psychologist, for example, might say diplomatically that both nature and nurture are important factors in determining behavior. Meanwhile, your work seems to have pretty much proven that, that there's nature, there's nurture, and then even at the genetic level, there is nurtured nature. So if you had kind of a wish list for how we move forward in this discussion, how would you want it to play out? You know, I think that's a very good point. Um, we had some great discussion about this at one of my patent lectures during my visit to uh, Indiana University. And I think you're right. I think we have to develop a different, not only conceptual framework, but a terminological framework that allows us to get past this. And I think that's an important goal for the future. Gene Robinson, it's been great speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on Profiles. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Gene Robinson, entomologist, director of the Bee Research Facility at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and the director of the Carl R. Woese Institute for Genomic Biology. Gene Robinson was on the IU Bloomington campus recently as a guest of the Patton Lecture Series. You've been listening to Profiles. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, the executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.